Let's turn to John in the second chapter, John chapter 2 this morning. I want you to know that I'm going to make it through John chapter 2 in just three sermons. I think it's a record of some sort, I don't know. John chapter 2. And three successive narratives between chapters 2 and 3, John introduces us to Jesus as the creator of the new wine, that's a symbol of a new creation, as the builder of the new temple, and the author of the new birth. New wine, new temple, new birth. Jesus is the Logos whose voice at the end of Revelation proclaims, Behold, I am making all things new. So we come now to the central narrative in verses 13 through 25, where Jesus cleanses the temple. The temple's significance was monumental for the Jew. And just as we discovered, there is really much deeper significance to Jesus' first miracle, changing water to wine, there really is very deep significance to this cleansing narrative, a lot more than first meets the eye. This narrative actually connects us to the Garden of Eden and to the New Jerusalem. And I will show you that in our next sermon. Today, I do really want to spend some time and invest some time in understanding how our Gospels are put together. I've wanted to do this from time to time, and I think this would be a good place to do that. We need to talk a little hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. And I do want to take some time and get this passage situated correctly. And then we will be prepared to really understand the profound theological significance of this passage. We won't be able to do that next week because of our guest speaker, but the following week we'll discover that. Let's go ahead and read the whole account beginning with verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And by the way, it went on for many years afterwards, another 40 years approximately. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And notice what happened. And they believed the Scripture, that's the Old Testament, and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, in his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, all four Gospels record the cleansing of the temple. But do they, in fact, describe the same cleansing? That question is one of the most important questions to address when working out the chronology of Jesus' life. In John's gospel, the, t- the temple cleansing is situated very early in the text, whereas in the synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing follows Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and occurs mere days before his death. The most natural reading of the account suggests that there are actually two cleansings and not one. And I personally believe there were two cleansings. This is the viewpoint of D.A. Carson, who was widely regarded as the best commentator on John's gospel. This is also the viewpoint of Robert Thomas and Stanley Gundry, whose harmony of the gospel some of you now own. Before I explain the double cleansing view, though, let's just understand a very important feature of how our Gospels are put together, and why it is that some interpreters only believe in one cleansing. To understand that, let's think about the Western mind. The Western mind thinks linearly. Joseph can tell you this. The Western mind attempts to order life chronologically. Aristotle's views on causality, one event produces the next event, and so forth, is widely adopted, widely assumed in Western culture. The caboose moves because it's coupled to the car in front of it, and that one to the car in front of it, and all the way down to the line, right? That's how we think about time. That's how we think about causality. causality. Now, all that to say, when biography is written from a Western perspective, It often follows this very chronological approach. An author just works with the chronology of his subject's life from beginning to end. Now, the Western mind also likes to develop chronological outlines of the gospel, or in fact, every book of the Bible for that matter. Western thinking likes to present material in a step-by-step-by-step chronological progression. Often, we have these very detailed outlines with major points and then sub-points and then lower points and all that. And frankly, when the Gospels are subjected to this kind of linear approach, they are made to read as if you really can work out a step-by-step chronology through Christ's life. And I want to say that sometimes that approach is very helpful. I'm not actually disregarding this whole approach. 
There was a general progression of events through the Gospels. Obviously, the birth comes before the crucifixion, all right? And the crucifixion comes before the resurrection. So there is, there is time moving through the Gospels. There's chronological progression. But at the same time, this approach can be problematic. And if you insist on it, you'll end up with unresolvable contradictions in the Gospels. You'll end up with things that you can't quite figure out how they go together. If the writer was not following an outline, don't impose an outline on the text. Often, ancient Middle Eastern authors were not so concerned to outline and chronologize the text the way we are. Clever outlines with five alliterated points and, of course, a poem thrown in often depict more of the imagination of the commentator than the actual intent of the original author. Sometimes it's not apparent that the Middle Eastern author had any particular outline in mind. Sometimes you just, you just can't detect it, so you don't want to impose that on the text. Rather, Middle Eastern biographical style, and I assume this is Eastern as well, Joseph, will provide what I like to think of as a very rich tapestry, a portrait, a tapestry giving us a holistic view of a person. And reading the Gospels is like looking at an elaborate woven portrait of Jesus. And these gospel writers painstakingly weave together individual threads of the Old Testament. They bring in all that color and they weave together these beautiful image of Jesus. Beautiful in their uniqueness and in their symmetry. Reading the gospels feels like contemplating a Turkish rug that took a master weaver years to create. Many years ago, before we had children, and my wife and I traveled a lot, we visited Ephesus, and there we visited a Turkish rug gallery. Anyone been to a Turkish rug gallery? All right, we see one, a couple of you. Very good, very good. A rug gallery consists of a large wooden floor surrounded by benches along all four walls, and tourists will sit there along those benches and sip their tea. And the carpet merchants will come out, and they will bring out these beautifully rolled carpets one after another, and they will just snap them out and lay them out across the floor under these brilliant lights. And when you look at these rugs, they each have a stunning beauty and a character. And if you, if you shift your perspective a little bit, they shine and they shimmer in different directions. They're absolutely exquisite. The artists who make these are apprenticed for years to learn their craft. Some of these works of art easily fetch tens of thousands of dollars. Well, to me, reading the gospel feels like contemplating a beautifully, beautifully hand-woven rug or a tapestry in all of its breathtaking beauty. John's gospel, to me, feels like the product of years and years of apprenticeship, followed by decades of reflection on Jesus' true identity. John, of course, followed John the Baptist, and he followed Jesus, and he reflected for years and years 
on who Jesus was, and he finally sits down, and he just weaves together this beautiful, exquisite portrait of Jesus. And you look at that, and you think, how could anything be so beautiful? And along comes the carpet merchant, and he rolls out another one. There's Matthew's gospel, equally beautiful, but different. And then here comes Mark's gospel, and here comes Luke's gospel, And Ephesus, before long, the whole floor is just covered with scores and scores of these beautiful rugs just crisscrossing each other with astonishing profusions of color and design and beauty. And remember how John's gospel ends. John says this, now there are also many of the things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We are talking about a gallery of rugs that just goes on and on forever, a library of books that has no end, an endless hall of tapestries, and every time we walk through it, we see a new view of Jesus. That's what it feels like to read John's gospel. Now, how do the gospel writers weave these portraits? Part of the answer, and I will not go into the full answer, part of the answer concerns the arrangement, or you might say the weaving together of pericopes. Now, you all know this term, all right? A pericope, all right, is a discrete literary unit that describes a miracle account, a conversation, a teaching moment, an event from the life of Christ. All right, if you look at the section headings of your ESV, they typically divide between different pericopes. They're really easy to see because the section heading just tells you, here's a new one. We don't use the word pericope all that much. That's kind of a scholarly term, but now you know it, right? Now, here's the key. Well, here's one key. Remember, there were no chapter or verse divisions in the original. So the, the, the gospel writers are not thinking individual verses the way we think about individual verses. They don't even think chapters. The chapters came 1,500 years later. The verse divisions came 1,500 years later, right? But here's the key. Gospel writers take these narratives, these pericopes, all right, and they arrange them in different ways to make a point. When you grasp that, you really understand how these gospels are put, in toge- are, are put together, They can arrange them and they can line them up in different ways so you see different facets of who Jesus is. Often, these pericopes are bumped out of linear chronological order on purpose, right? This is what the Western mind has to get used to this, right? This may be out of order, If you're not aware of it, you might think there's a contradiction, but there's no contradiction. Now, let me just talk you through one example that has nothing to do with our text this morning, all right? But it's one of my favorite examples. If you compare John and Matthew's account of the woman anointing Jesus for burial, John names her Mary you will find they occupy different chronological places. You also find the details differ a little bit. In John's account, which probably records the true chronology, it is Mary who anoints Jesus' feet. She anoints his feet 
before the triumphal entry, some six days at least before the crucifixion. Matthew, on the other hand, tells us the woman, he doesn't name her, but it's Mary, poured perfume on Jesus' head. Now, there's no contradiction when you simply recognize that she anointed both, the head and the feet. But why the difference? Well, curiously, it's John's account, not Matthew's, that tells us that Jesus later washed his disciples' feet. So here is a woman demonstrating Christ-like service even before Jesus modeled it. You cannot read the lovely account without recognizing that Mary has truly embraced her Messiah. Now Matthew takes that same story, that pericope, and he bumps it up chronologically so that we read about it immediately before Matthew records the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. He situates the event after the triumphal entry and after many of the extraordinary details of the final week so it doesn't get lost in all those events. You know how much goes on there in the final week? You've got the cleansing of the temple and you've got the Olivet Discourse, you've got all these parables. It, just, it would get lost in all the details. So what Matthew does is he takes that same story which happened before the triumphal entry and he bumps it out of order and he situates it right in front of the cross, right next to Judas's betrayal. And why does Matthew do this? Well, obviously, he wants us to contrast this wonderful story of this woman who recognizes Jesus and his own disciple who betrays him. One anoints him, one betrays him. You can't miss it. It also communicates that Jesus was truly anointed king before going to his cross. Remember how Matthew emphasizes the anointing of the head, not the feet. Well, that's because Matthew's gospel, unlike John's gospel, emphasizes Christ's kingship from beginning to end. For Matthew, the cross represents the inauguration of the king. That's when Jesus is lifted up to rule, and he has already been anointed. When was he anointed? By Mary. Mary anoints him, and then he is inaugurated king. Really, frankly, I think the beauty of what Matthew does there is just stunning. Really beautiful. Now, friends, that was a lengthy digression in the chronologies and pericopes, but I, I hope it helps you understand how these gospels are put together in a magnificent way. And let me just say that when you exposit the Scriptures, it's not merely a matter of commenting verse by verse, right, in a chronological progression that's helpful, but you need to remember also that when you read these, these books, any book of the Bible, the Gospels in particular, that they are structured as complete literary units, right? They're woven together as a single tapestry, so you want to just pay attention to how all the parts fit together. I know it's hard to do that, but when you read and read and reread the gospel account, some of this really becomes clear. Let me encourage you to do that at some point. Just sit down and read a whole gospel all the way through. It doesn't take as long as you might think. A Sunday afternoon is a good time to do that. Just sit down and read John all the way through. 
Read Matthew all the way through. And when you do that, just ignore the chapter divisions, ignore the verse divisions, you begin to see these portraits in all of their beauty. You really do want to try to climb into the mind of the author, the artist, to really understand what he's doing there. All right, so with all that in place, let's come back now to the cleansing of the temple. I did not go through all of that to prove that it's actually just one cleansing the temple. Having said all that, I do actually believe there were two different pericopes, all right? I do believe that John is actually referring to a different cleansing than the one that we read about in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, it is true that some believe that there was only one cleansing. And let me just briefly explain why that is, all right? Some people believe that what John is doing here is just taking this emphasis on Jesus as the creator of all things new, the new wine, the new temple, the new birth, and he's just moving that cleansing up earlier in his gospel so you know who this person is. He is the creator of all things new. He's the creator of the new temple. And so he just moves it up early in his gospel so we know who Jesus is. But again, I do believe that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. And I want to take a little time here and explain to you why that is, because it really is crucial to understanding the chronology of Jesus' life. All right, so three reasons why I think Jesus twice cleansed the temple. Number one, the first concerns Jesus' identity. In the synoptics, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he is very well known. Jesus, in the synoptics, is actually forcing the issue of his kingship on Jerusalem. Are you going to embrace me or not? That's the question that just looms over Jerusalem. But in John's gospel, Jesus is much more reserved, much more cryptic about his true identity. Now, in Matthew's gospel, by contrast, Jesus deliberately heals two blind men in Jericho as he makes his way up to Jerusalem. And those blind men loudly proclaim him to be the son of David. And unlike earlier in his ministry, when Jesus healed the blind and told them to keep it quiet, Jesus says nothing to these men about keeping quiet this time around. He wants to be known. And news of that healing would have just rumbled right to that Passover crowd making its way up to Jerusalem through those mountain passes. And then Jesus, of course, comes along, and he very deliberately arranges this donkey ride into Jerusalem. And he presses Zechariah's prophecy to fulfillment. Are you going to embrace the king or not? And when Jesus arrived and cleansed the temple, we're told the blind and the lame flocked to him and they greeted him with loud hosannas as the son of David. And Jesus makes no effort to conceal his true identity. In fact, he rebukes the leaders of Jerusalem when they call upon Jesus to silence the crowds. When I read Matthew's cleansing, it feels to me kind of like a showdown, you know, like an old West movie. This is like the OK Corral, you know, it's all coming to a head. It's right here, all right? And, and, and frankly, in Matthew, there is pressure that builds concerning Jesus' true identity. And it really builds until that moment when Jesus explosively just rides his donkey declaring his kingship. 
Right after that, Jesus, of course, cleanses the temple. Then he curses the fig tree, which symbolizes the Jewish leadership. Then he delivers these stinging parables against the Jewish leadership. He preaches seven woes against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then he predicts the entire destruction of the whole temple. And he says nothing about rebuilding it, by the way. And then suddenly, he's hanging on a tree. And just as suddenly... He resurrects with all authority over heaven and earth, and that's how Matthew's gospel ends. It really was a showdown at the OK Corral, if you will. Sorry to use that illustration, but it makes sense. All right? Now, when you read John's account, as we just read, it reads very differently, doesn't it? There's no donkey ride. There's no wave of popular pressure just propelling Jesus toward Jerusalem after he's opened blind eyes. In fact, in verse 24, Jesus is not ready to fully manifest his identity. Look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Well, clearly, Jesus is not looking for widespread public attention and affirmation at this point. There are no crowds with waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna to the Son of David. He's not looking for people to bear witness at this point. And John's gospel reads as if Jesus has much to accomplish before he presents himself definitively to the world. So I think that we are still very early in Jesus' ministry with this particular cleansing. All right, that's the first reason. The second reason I believe there were two cleansings concerns the internal chronology in John's gospel. Now again, Middle Eastern authors are not so concerned with chronology as we are. But having said that, when the author deliberately uses chronological markers, you need to take those seriously. Sometimes they put the time markers in, and when they do, you cannot disregard them. All right, so let's just notice how the text is arranged. In John 2 and verse 23, we are told that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. All right, that event, the Passover, is also referenced in verse 13. Jesus cleanses the temple at Passover. All right, so he's down in Jerusalem. And notice what happens next, chapter 3, while he's down there. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And this follows right in the heels of John's statement concerning Jesus being in Jerusalem for Passover. Nicodemus has many questions about Jesus. He was trying to figure out who Jesus is. And that discourse with Nicodemus runs all the way down through verse 21. But notice what happens next. John gives us a chronological detail that we should not discard. John 3, verse 22, after this. All right? He came to Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple, he talked to Nicodemus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, that's John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, in the synoptics, after Jesus cleanses the temple, he remains in Jerusalem or nearby Bethany 
and he is arrested and executed within less than a week. And John, after cleansing the temple, Jesus makes his way out of Jerusalem, did you see it, into the Judean countryside. And he apparently is there for some time. He remained there and was baptizing there. And further, notice who was still alive. John the Baptist. John has long since been executed by the time Jesus cleansed the temple during his final week in Jerusalem. At this point, John is still alive. Now, if you'll keep reading right into the next chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Jesus left Judea, he leaves it all together, and he goes back to Galilee. And of course, while he passes through Samaria, he meets the woman at the well. And that does not fit with the synoptics where Jesus is on a cross within six days of the triumphal entry. If I can just point out one more internal chronological detail, let's turn now to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. By the time we reach John 11, Jesus is fairly well known. And there's a plot that has been hatched in Jerusalem. And John tells us that Jesus could not safely come and go among the Jews. Look at verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. Then in verse 55, John eleven fifty-five, 55, we read this. Now the Passover. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now presumably this is a very this is a different Passover than the one recorded back in John chapter 2. At this point, Jesus is well known. Back in John 2, Jesus is not well known and he really is in no immediate danger of arrest. All right? It really would be odd, I think, for John to tell part of the story of a single Passover in John 2, all right, and then in John 11. There has to be two different Passovers. It really would be very odd to be told part of the Passover story back in John 2 and part of the same story in John chapter 11, nine chapters later. That does not read very naturally at all. All right? So I think this is a different Passover. And if we read right into chapter 12... We find Jesus six days before Passover being anointed by Mary, which I referenced already. Then in verse 12, we read this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Well, there's your donkey ride at Passover. And again, that seems to be a very different Passover than the one recorded back in John chapter 2. In John 2, there's no donkey ride. There's no waving palm branches. This, I suspect, is a very different Passover. Now, of course, John does not tell us that Jesus went on to cleanse the temple, cleanse it a second time after the donkey ride, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us that detail. Now, 
All this leads many commentators to believe that Jesus, in fact, cleansed the temple twice. Twice at Passover, yes, but two different Passovers. Now, by the way, we won't turn there, but if you just want to jot down John 6 and verse 4, John 6 and verse 4, there was a reference to yet another Passover. John 6, 4 references a Passover, and that Passover, I believe, falls between John 2, that Passover, and John 11. In other words, there are some three Passovers that occur during the ministry of Jesus. Now, how many of you have ever heard that Jesus ministered for three years? Right? We've probably all heard that. How do we know that? I just explained it to you. Right? I went through all that detail so you know why it is that Bible commentators often believe that Jesus spent three years in public ministry. It really is the Passover references in John's account that really just sort of open up the chronology of Christ's life and that make it really clear that actually he ministered for some three years. Some people said he only ministered one year. If you conflate the two, if you conflate the two cleansings of the temple in one, people say, whatever, he only ministered a year. I really do believe that Jesus spent three years in public ministry. And I know I spent a long time with that, working through all that, but you know, this is just such a, a, a common notion that we have that I thought, you know, let's just take some time and work through that and explain it. John references three different Passovers, I believe. And that's how we know that Jesus was involved in some three years of public ministry. All right, now with all that in place, let's go back to John chapter 2. And let me just reference one more difference and one more reason why I believe that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. That third reason concerns some of the internal differences between John's gospel and the synoptics. John's account reads as a much more thorough cleansing of the temple. In fact, John tells us that Jesus made a whip. And he drove out the large animals, the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. Did you know that neither of those details is actually found in the synoptics? One of the chief arguments in favor of a single cleansing of the temple is the assumption that the Jewish authorities would have been on high alert against Jesus doing this a second time. But I really do find that argument unconvincing. Jesus actually made multiple trips to Jerusalem, so far as we know. And these Passover cleansings would have been separated by a couple years. In the words of D.A. Carson, the authorities could not possibly be expected to keep their guard up against him indefinitely. All right, so I don't find that to be much of an argument. I really do believe that there were two cleansings. However, I will say this. It is possible that Jesus staged a major cleansing early on. That's the one we read about in John 2. That's the one with the whip, and that's the one with the big animals, right? He stages a major cleansing early on in his ministry, and then later on, after the triumphal entry, that cleansing is more muted. That cleansing is maybe on a smaller scale, possibly. That's, that's quite possible. We don't know that for certain, but it was, it was sufficient uh, to bring him back to the attention of the authorities and to secure his arrest and crucifixion. So let's just review. I know this is more teaching than preaching today, but that's okay. There are, there are three reasons why I personally believe there were two cleansings, all right? The first concerns the very different emphases on Jesus' true identity. 
In John, he is not well known. In the synoptics, he's well known. And the second concerns the internal chronological details in the book of John. And the third concerns the internal differences between John's account and the synoptics. It's a much more thorough cleansing, it seems, in John. Okay, now, I certainly hope this helps us to read the Gospels carefully, but I do want to conclude this morning with a couple reflections on the passage at hand that I think will be helpful to us. Let's read again verses 13 through 17, where Jesus cleanses the temple. The pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's just make two observations about this scene. First of all, in principle, there was nothing wrong with selling animals for sacrifice. In fact, it was a necessity. Many Jews traveled from afar when coming to Jerusalem, and herding animals in for sacrifice, herding the men at Passover, was a very difficult task. If the sacrificial animal was bruised or damaged along the way in the pilgrim journey, he could not be offered. So consequently, many pilgrims simply purchased sacrificial animals when they arrived at Passover. There's nothing wrong with this. Carrying a bag of coins to Jerusalem and purchasing an animal once you get there is a lot easier than trying to bring an animal in. But in time, what had happened is the selling of animals had become a racketeering business. Animal merchants became more interested in turning a profit than in facilitating worship. And we do know from contemporary sources that Caiaphas, the high priest, against the advice of the Sanhedrin, actually authorized, just before Jesus came in, the sale of animals on the temple mount itself. Not off, not off site, but on the temple mount itself. Formerly, if you wanted to get an animal for sacrifice, you would go over to the Mount of Olives. And there you would buy the animals, you would bring them through the ravine and up to the temple for sacrifice. Well, Caiaphas' decision to bring all that trade up onto the Temple Mount, into the temple environs, had the effect of confusing business with religion. That was the issue. It created a scandal. Similar to showing up on a Sunday morning and buying and selling real estate or new cars or whatever it is you buy and sell. All right, we, we just we try to stay away from all that. We try to stay away from business on Sunday when we're worshiping together. I, I think that's the application. We don't show up here to, you know, engage, engage in lucrative trade and, you know, buy someone's house or whatever it is. There ought to be something, I think, unique and special about the place of worship, about the time of worship, about coming together for gathered worship. I, I think that's an application of the passage. And secondly, this is really crucial. Let's remember that God, in His law, instituted the whole sacrificial system centered on the tabernacle and the later temple. And clearly, from what we just read, Jesus respects it. 
this really is crucial. The same Jesus who will replace the whole temple system cleanses the temple because he values and respects the religious ceremonies that God instituted. How do you miss that? Jesus respects God's law. I think sometimes, I've mentioned this before, that as New Testament believers, we become almost dismissive of the Old Testament law. We can adopt this flippant attitude toward the whole Old Testament system as if it's only there to make us grateful that we don't have to live under it any longer. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm so glad I don't have to live under it. In my estimation, that's, that's sort of a flippant attitude toward God's law. More than once, I've had Christians tell me that God's law in the Old Testament has just nothing to do with them, and they're just so glad. They interpret Christ's unknown of the law as just somehow liberating us to just live however we please. But really, friends, is that the proper attitude? Is that Jesus' attitude? On the one hand, it is true we have been released from the law. Don't be confused on that. We never could perfectly keep the law or earn favor with God in any way whatsoever. But this sort of flippant, dismissive attitude towards God's law, I think, is rather dangerous. God's law, including God's sacrificial system, was God-ordained, and therefore it was good. John has already told us the law was given by grace. Men corrupted the law, they corrupted the whole temple system, but the temple system itself and God's law were God-ordained. And you'll notice in reading the Gospels that Jesus is never dismissive of God's law. And that's because He wrote it. He's Yahweh. He's one with God. He wrote those laws. And so He keeps those laws. Jesus loves God's laws, and Jesus loves God's institutions. Now, Jesus is zealous, obviously, to see God's law carried out properly in God's temple. So this really should become, I think, a point of application. Be careful that we don't slip into a similar spirit of just disrespect for God's law. Friends, the law was the means by which Jesus perfectly obeyed God the Father on your behalf. We could not obey God's laws even if we had a million, million chances. But Jesus actively obeyed God in our place, every jot and tittle. Jesus' zealousness for the temple was the same zealousness that he had for all of God's law. Now when Jesus actively obeyed God's law on our behalf, He affirmed God's standards of righteousness. So yes, indeed, He annuls the sacrifices. That's true. We don't come bringing a sacrifice. He annulled the sacrifices, but He affirmed God's standards of righteousness. Jesus never overturns God's standards of morality. They are His own. He's Yahweh. Now, we are not under the same penalties as an Old Testament saint, but God's standards are still the same. God doesn't change His view of holiness. God doesn't change His view of morality when we go between Testaments. Not at all. Jesus affirmed God's demand for personal holiness. 
And Jesus affirmed God's demand for a sacrifice for human sin. And Jesus upheld God's law and God's sacrifices because they ultimately pointed to Him as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He was the perfect sacrifice because He was perfectly obedient to every one of God's laws. And sometimes Christians, I think, are so eager to defend grace as opposed to works, which is true. We're saved by grace, not by works. Don't misunderstand. But we're so eager to defend that we actually end up disparaging God's law. We disparage God's sense of morality. I embrace Jesus Christ, friends, as the one who perfectly obeyed God on my behalf. That's the gospel. I'm thankful for God's law, and I'm thankful that Jesus obeyed it perfectly on my behalf. And friends, if I have embraced the gospel by faith, not by works, then guess what? I have been given the Spirit of Jesus to enable me through sanctification to now follow God's standards of morality, God's view of holiness, God's view of justice. I have been given God's Spirit to change me into the image of Jesus Christ, the same Jesus who loves God's truth. And when I witness Jesus zealously cleansing the filth of the old temple, I need to equally embrace His cleansing of the new temple. And where do you find the new temple? We, friends, are the new temple. Jesus does not redeem us to leave us where we are. He redeems us to cleanse us and to purify us and to restore us to God's standards of rightness and wrongness and truth and justice.